You're listening to Interviews, the podcast that cracks the entrepreneurship code. I'm your host, Laurent Autain. I'm an entrepreneur, coach to entrepreneurs, and startup mentor with more than 20 years' experience running companies and advising entrepreneurs. Being an entrepreneur is the most difficult job there is. There are no practical guidelines. So join me every week and learn how you can better navigate your entrepreneurship journey and become an exceptional entrepreneur. This is episode 125, a special episode today with a special guest, and we're going to talk a lot about mindset. My guest is established speaker, author, and explorer, Mark Wood, who has completed over 30 major expeditions around the world. Mark's expeditions include guiding film crews to the magnetic North Pole, leading two expeditions to the geomagnetic North Pole and completing solo expeditions to both the geographic North and South Poles. If I counted well, he went to the poles 12 times. Mark is also an accomplished mountain climber, having picked the Mount Everest twice, I believe, and narrowly missed a third peak to save another climber's life. He's been a part of the major BBC and Channel 5 documentaries and over the years has trained and led people to the extremes of the planet. His own award-winning documentaries cover the life of dog teams in Alaska, a solo survival film in the extremes, and a complex cutting-edge expedition documentary showing the harsh reality of global warming and its effect on the Arctic Ocean as his team crossed to the North Pole. I also have to mention that Mark has created extreme classroom environments on Mount Everest involving over 1.2 million students. This is, this is huge. And is ranked within the top five communicators in the world on the Skype platform. What a life. Hi, Mark. Thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you. I'm, I'm exhausted just hearing about that. So... Um... <laughs> It's really nice to speak to you, by the way. It's uh, it's a joy to be on your platform today. So thank you for inviting me. No, no problem. I mean, yeah, what 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 a life! It's 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 crazy. And I didn't mention the other stuff because I know you're also a photographer. You wrote you wrote two books. This is crazy. But I'm really interested at you know how did it start? When when did you know you wanted to be an explorer? Uh, I I don't think I did know, and it, I even have to question that title sometimes um depends who you're speaking to you know if you're speaking to your peers or other people you know who do kind of what you do it is a questionable title um i i just you can justify it in many ways that i dedicate my whole life to exploration i don't just jump into adventure and then go back to an office job i actually dedicate my whole life um, but the way that I finalize my justification is that I give a lot, I dedicate exploration, I dedicate my edu- exploration life to education. Um, and when I go into a classroom full of six-year-old children and the teacher says, here's an explorer, and they get all excited, for me, that's justification. Um, but to actually get into exploration, um, I'm not, I know how it happened, obviously, but I was in the military to begin with when I was a young boy from the age of um, 17 to 21. So university years, if you like. Mm. So that taught me discipline and that the world was different because we went abroad quite a lot. Um, And then I traveled 
and then I joined the fire and rescue service. Mm. So I was always in sort of like, you know, what's going to happen next jobs. Um, and then I got a little bit bored in the fire and rescue service because it's a waiting game full of training and that prep, but then you're waiting. So I just applied like anybody else can do in the world to do something different, you know, and this is the adventurer. So people can go and climb the nearest mountain to where they live, or they can go with a guide like myself to the North Pole. The world is very open up nowadays if you live in a free country. Um, and that's what I did. I joined, uh, I went on selection, joined an expedition team to, to the poles. And the question would be, well, why the poles to begin with? What was the mindset of that? I'd, I'd actually read um, Mind Over Matter, which is quite poignant to your question in today, I think, mm. um, by Serrano Fines, who um, who now I speak, I spoke to him yesterday, funnily enough. And, but, you know, 20 years ago, I was like, wow, who is this guy? Um, mm. And Mind Over Matter really got into my, I think at the time, my psyche of thinking, wow, it's not just the body that's strong. Um, and then I read another book of his called Living Dangerously. And what I got from that book was how you could fill your life full of stuff to do. Mm -hmm. And I'm saying stuff, not adventure, because people, some people can't do adventure. But actually looking at your life in a, in a distant, distant way of saying, right, how am I going to really enjoy my life? It's going to be crap sometimes, but how am I going to enjoy my life? So that's how I, I took those two books and went off. And, and um, my first experience was in 2003, uh, heading right. off to the Arctic. Yeah. How was it? Cold. <laughs> 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 yeah. I'll try and answer the questions a bit better if you like. Um <laughs> <laughs> hey, but you know, um, I had an experience cold like that. So right. I, when we arrived in Ottawa, heading up to, we were heading eventually up to Resolute Bay, which is in high Arctic Canada along the Northwest Passage. But in Ottawa that year, it was minus 35. Um, and we were sat in, I'm, I'm from Coventry, which is in the UK, very car industrial area very center of the uk almost it's the central city of the uk so no coasts uh, nothing really outdoorsy there at the time um so there was to be then taken to ottawa where it was you know three foot high snow outside of your cafe window and you're drinking coffee and looking at the snow and putting on big down jackets that was an experience but then we flew a further you know eight nine hours north to this remote beautiful set settlement of Resolute Bay that I've got a real love for now and a real connection with some of the people there. Um, and I stepped off the plane and as I walked to the terminal, the air airport terminal, the, the cold air went into my lungs and I started to cough and I thought, this is frightening, you know, <laughs> surrounded by freezing cold sort of ice, even at the airport. And I thought, how am I going to, cope with this you know yeah. um but over 70 days of periodic sort of training i learned how to survive move but most of all and i think this is the key thing which built me a 20-year career was i learned how to appreciate uh the polar regions and i think that was the key the trigger for me so is it what's driving you? Because you also talk about education earlier on. 
I'm trying to get into a little bit in your mind. You know, 30 major expeditions around the world. I know some, you went also to Africa. What's, what's, what's a driver? What's your driver? Um, I think in the first probably four to five, about five, six years maybe of, of doing this exploration, I was still working for the Fire and Rescue Service. So I was mm. taking three months off a year to go out and do an expedition. And at the time I was learning the trade, if you like, And I think it was looking back now and, and in pure honesty, it was more egotistical. So I wanted to be Rand Fines or Mike Stroud or, you know, these guys that I knew of, uh, Robert Swan and all that. I wanted to have that photograph of, on the wall of me pulling the sledge and, and everything. And why not? You know, this is the, the beauty of it. And there is an ego side to everybody. And my ego was, I wanted to go and do stuff. And what was all this about? But after a while, I then thought well why do I want to do this yeah. and I think the trigger was that I gave a talk at my old school in Coventry and the kids were really excited I then did a I broke away from the team that I was working with and I did a I led my own team across the Northwest Passage on a, a four-week expedition linking Resolute Bay with Grease Fjord the two highest Canadian settlements um, and that was across the passage over you know you know, small mountains through fjords. We saw polar bears, strong wind. It had everything. It had like a, you know, a boy's own adventure, as we used to say when I was a little boy. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that was really exciting. But the key to that expedition was I linked to these 18 young people in my school via a sat phone every other day. So they were sat in the classroom around a speaker I was, hi, guys, how you doing? Hi, hi, Mark. And I was operating in extremes. And this was like 2006. No, no 2007. Now, you know, I think people are, are, are so used to this sort of technology nowadays that when you say I link from the extremes, it's like, yeah, okay, whatever. But, you know, it was, it was it's not like wartime or anything. We weren't in World War yeah. II, but it was early technology. Yeah. Um, And I think the thing that I'm proud of, and I know we'll probably touch on this a bit later, but from that year of linking with 18 young people, I then went on to build education programs with Skype uh, to 10,000 young people on Everest, carried that through to 2019, where I linked, as you said at the start, to 1.2 million children. And that's a known figure. All those figures are known. The knock-on effect is not known. Um, yeah. so how that affects the school and families etc and villages and so on wow the stars in the eyes of those children it's been unbelievable uh, can, can i just tell you a, a real key moment in this yeah just a real key moment yeah. which i which you know i am proud of a few things that i've done a, a lot of what i've done is is leading up to what i want to do if mm. that makes sense um But the, there's a few things that I look back on and go, wow, we, we really did do that. In 2013, there was 10,000 children plus who followed this journey from the UK to Kathmandu through the lower valleys all the way up to base camp Everest, all the way up to camp one, two, three and four and heading towards the summit of Everest. I carried a unit in my backpack, an Imasat unit, which would create a Wi-Fi space so I could connect via a tablet to young people around the world visually. You'd only have five, 10, 15 minutes max to speak to these young people. In the death zone on Mount Everest, 7,200 meters up, 
as we were moving away from Camp 3 on the Lotsey face. Now, if you don't know this, it's quite a, a dangerous area to hang around, if you like. And when you see these climbers climbing Everest, they're, they're in a line, they're climbing up. Well, picture that, but then picture an idiot like me sat down on a piece of ice with a rope tied around my waist and an anchor in the ground so I wouldn't slip down the mountain. And then I had this tablet in my hand connected to a school in Australia. Now, in Australia, there was about 100 to 200 children sat in a sports hall with a big, massive screen in front of them of an explorer or explorer live uh, on the side of Mount Everest, climbing Mount Everest, giving yeah. them a talk. for. And what happened in those few moments was I gave a little talk, showed them the footsteps of the climbers climbing by me, and then certain children came up and asked me questions. And I know this is visual. So they were giving me fist bumps or high fives or shaking my hand or whatever on Everest. And then they were asking a question and I was answering it. Now, I was super proud of that. But in 2019, I wanted to readdress that, and try and make it a bit better if we could. So I contacted, now Skype was in America then, it's moved out of the UK. And I spoke to this one lady and one of the bosses and she said, you don't remember me, do you? I was like, I'm really sorry, I'm terrible with names. And she said, well, and she went through what I just said to you. And she said there was young one young boy on there, which I won't mention his name, who was an underachiever in the school. And he mm -hmm. was about to be sort of thrown out, if you like, um, in a good way. In a, well, you know what I mean? Um, and he came up to the screen and asked me a question. Don't know what the question was. We high-fived or something like that. I talked to him personally from Everest. And they said to me, after that, he improved. He kind of understood a little bit more about himself. Um, didn't become anything special from the school, but remained at the school and his attitude changed slightly. So for me in 2019, like seven or eight years later, I got quite emotional about that because you don't know the knock-on effect yeah. of what you're saying and what you're doing. And that's the responsibility we carry as adults. And when we talk in a position of so-called authority, we talk to young people and what we say resonates with them. Um, so we should be consistent in what we say. Yeah, I can totally relate to that because that's why I'm a coach. You know, I don't coach young people, I coach entrepreneurs, but that knock-on effect, you know, the, the 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 sparkle in the eyes when people understand something, this is this is why I'm doing it. It's not about the money, it's about it's about that. Yeah. yeah. What what do you teach to those uh, young people? Oh, see, that is the key question. That yeah. is a perfect, perfect question. <laughs> um it, it truly is, because the broadness of this is the 10,000 young people that we're connected with are from Africa, Sweden, Thailand, Canada, America, UK. They're all over the world. They live in different kinds of wealth from mm. Etonians in the UK to whatever else, you know. Um, and geographically, they live in small villages or they live in big cities or remote areas. There's one school that we link to. There's only six children and it was a homeschool thing because I think it was in the Australian outback. So, you know, you're reaching different children. So when you've got five or 10 minutes on the side of a, a very hostile environment, how can you how can you connect with a young person straight away? 
So what I did, I did, I came up with four things that I would touch on very quickly and I'll tell you them now, but they do, they do. I think they resonate with every human being. Mm. Okay. So I think the four most important things in life are this, and this is when the podcast cast cuts out and we lose <laughs> signal. <laughs> it's up, up, up. <laughs> the key to life. <laughs> no, I think uh, personally, this obviously this is my opinion, but I think the four things that I sort of learn by is, and and in order really, I think um, I think the key to everything that you do is you've got to have a total respect for yourself to begin with. Now, people would think, well, respect for others, respect for. But if you don't look after yourself and understand yourself and know that you are one of seven billion people on the planet, you're unique, you're wonderful, no matter what you look like or where you live or how much money you've got, internally you're a good, decent human being. So be that person. We'll muck up sometimes, don't worry. That's the learning curve in it. But try and be a decent human being. Respect for yourself is paramount to how you move forward. Second to that is have an equal respect for the environment. Now, we hear this now every day. When I was a kid, we never learned about climate change, the environment and everything else. And I think climate change seems very distant to people who live in areas that I live in. Um, and it's only when you go to the Arctic or the Amazon or whatever that you understand the enormity of it. We are seeing it on TV. What I try to talk about is the environment directly outside of your building where you are it's the local area your garden your village your town your school your community how understand that connection with the environment and how important it is to your own existence as a human being mm. that's dramatic but it's absolutely spot on and true and re reality just have an appreciation the third thing is you know, I mentioned already I'm from an industrial car area in the UK, Coventry, um, but I'm an explorer and yeah. military and rescue and stuff like that. So you've got to think differently about life. So no matter where you're from, if you have nothing in your house, if your mother and father have to work really hard and that, um, there's always things you can do to make everybody feel good and make your village feel good or your community or whatever. And if you look down, there's nothing wrong with living a, a so-called normal life of nine to five, five days a week. Fam. That's a beautiful, beautiful thing to do. But that comes with the first one, respect for yourself. But to actually think differently, how can I do this differently? So look down life like this, but then look slightly to the left or the right. Mm. And that's how life can be different. And the fourth one is one that I struggle with. Um, because I'm so engrossed in trying to get these expeditions, education, filming and everything so tight, I forget to have fun. So the fourth one is have fun. So respect for yourself, respect for the environment, think differently about life and take time to appreciate and have fun. And they're the four messages that resonate with every human being. Yep. And again, that last one, forget to have fun. <laughs> Big struggle for me. And yeah, I didn't put yeah. it that way. I put it like I forget to enjoy life. I forget to enjoy mm. what I have. You know, I don't allow that's it. I don't I don't give myself permission to enjoy, to have to have fun because mm. of whatever reasons, stupid reasons in my head. Yeah. Thank you. I think 
I think that, I mean, other people would be listening to this going, oh, well, I would add this to it and I would add that, that to it. That, that's fine. It's how you want to, it's your world, it's your film yeah. that you're creating in your life. But um, that's how I, I look at it. And I slip because I'm human. I slip a lot. But then I, that puts me back on, on track again. Um, yeah, I think being a decent human being is 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 uh, something that we can all sort of gear towards. Unfortunately, humans on mass aren't like that. Um, yeah. You know, never have been like that. So that's the battle mm-hmm. we face. So we are our, our own enemy. I don't want to okay. preach. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I mean, I, I help... Uh entrepreneurs stop being the bottleneck in their business you know that's what it means <laughs> or on enemies mm-hmm. um you, you mentioned like how you were like uh, addressing the students while on uh on being on uh, on the mount everest what was the most intense situation you've ever had to deal with in yeah. life my mom dying of cancer and my dad passing away last year when we couldn't see, well i could only see him in covid but that aside, because that is a life thing, yeah. um, I think on expiration, it was then further up the mountain on Everest. Um, we were, I was, I felt great. I mean, I'm not a mountaineer, by the way, and Everest is a semi-technical mountain. So, and you're guided on it. So, um, mm-hmm. but it's still very hard. It's still difficult and hard to operate above the clouds in the death zone. Your body's dying at that point. Um, you take on oxygen, but you're still weakening in your body. Um, mm-hmm. And you can ask anybody that, any of the great climbers. And I've been in touch. I'm doing an event soon. So I've been in touch with people like Chris Bonneton, Ram Fines, Kenton Cool, um, Edmund Hillary's family, all this week. Um, and these are the best climbers, you know, Neville Schumann, Krishna Thrapa, who's a great Nepalese climber. And they will all tell you that it's hard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so when you've got a novice like me going up, and I think the way that you cope with that to begin with is to lower your ego, drop your heart rate, focus on the moment and look at the mountains and, and just take one step at a time. It's about relaxing your heart rate and moving through quite easily. Um, difficult to do, but, you know, you just got to you almost take the expedition word out of it. And it's an existence of your time, just moving through and living at base camp and moving up one step at a time. But when we were nearing the summit and we were just about 200 meters away from the summit of the final ascent, we were in a team of four, two Nepalese guys and two British guys, myself and a doctor. And we were, uh, it was in darkness, really cold, probably about minus 40, 45, 50 mile an hour side wind, which made the the temperature drop. Um, But I'm, I'm used to polar exploration. So I could, focusing on the moment i was i was warm in my down suit i actually unzipped it so i was too warm um and i was hooked onto the line so i was safe i wasn't going anywhere but still it was a very if you stepped away from that and thought about the cold and wind and the, the darkness and the isolation um then you would have panicked but we focused on the moment we climbed um and we got to 200 meters uh to towards the top i could see the head torches of climbers reaching the, the summit um and the lead guy got into trouble fell to the ground i went up to him and shouted him you're okay and i could see that he was losing strength and you know his life 
Um, so then I stepped back and spoke to my colleague and he said, well, his feet, his feet were fr frozen. He needed to head down the mountain. And then the fourth guy who was Nepalese was already abseiling out of the, the situation. So I screamed at him in the night to come back up and help me. He came up and he was in bits. He was crying. And, and I, I'm, I'm nothing special. I want to put that. I am nothing special because I was, I think my training of all the way through my life and, and then being frightened myself helped in fear myself helped because it allowed me to just, okay, how are we going to do this? And I focused on just one step in front of the other, but then I was left with this situation. So I looked up at the mount, the summit. I was, oh, by the way, I was meant to do the first live call from the summit to wow. schools across the world and to the bosses of Skype and Microsoft who were waiting in California for my live call. Yeah. So no pressure, eh? Um, so, so at that point, I mean, I could we could talk about the psychology of it, every and the leadership and the, you know, forever. But it, in essence, it it was based on me being as a human being that the decision was made, not as a so-called explorer, adventurer, or whatever you title, professional camper, whatever. I did. So at that point, we just put his arm around us guys and we carried him uh, carried him down to camp four. Um, we all stayed at camp four. I tried to do a reascent the next morning, but your body's dying at that point and the energy mm -hmm. is dropping. So then we thought, well, I didn't really want to leave him anyway and we didn't want to sort of split up as a team, which happens, by the way. Uh, so we then traversed across the Lotsy face, spent three days getting down the mountain, arrived at base camp, and then everybody lived on that expedition. He improved through oxygen levels as, the, as we dropped off the mountain. And we all came back actually super fit and healthy. But it was that singular moment on the mountain where you hear so many times that, okay, I'll leave you. Or, funnily enough, when I give talks to schools, whether it's on a platform like this or in a school, I describe that moment, singular moment, I needed to make a decision. And then I look at the children and go, what decision do you think I made? And I storytell it so it's silent. And then the hands go up and somebody will say, oh, you carried him down. And another one will say, well, you went up to the top. You were so close. And, you know, mm -hmm. so they all have these different ideas, which is great because that's how humans think. They have all these different ideas in the moment. And actually, they've been executed on the mountain prior. You know, people have died on that mountain because of wrong decisions in yeah. the moment. And it's not for me to judge that because in the moment is the key phrase to use. You know, decision-making is based on sometimes have quick decisions. If you have the luxury of getting together as a team and making a collective decision then said by yourself because you're the leader, then that's great. But if you've got to make a decision on the spot, um, then you make that decision, you stand by it. It's based on experience and who you are as a human being. The worst you can do thing you can do in that position is not make a decision. You know that's the that's the downfall of it. You you uh, you do workshops also for for leaders. How how do you translate what you just said and you know the, all your experiences in in extraordinary situations to them? And by leaders, I also include entrepreneurs. Because entrepreneurs are leaders by default. Well, to start off with I I tell the audience of people who are 
making money out of leadership. So, they're, they're, which is nothing wrong with that, by the way. The great businesses, great strategists and leaders, and um, people who understand how to run a business and get money and progress a business. So they know more than me in that sense. Um, but my skills have been learned from making a million mistakes and then coming out and, and understanding who I am and how I can guide and, and whatever. Mm-hmm. But right at the very start of a talk, I usually say that I'm not going to reference everything to leadership. So as an example, oh, I was on the side of Everest and this happened. Just as your company puts together a project and maybe something goes wrong. You know, I mean, it's so shit. (laughs) So cliche. (laughs) (laughs) That that you have to then bring it in. And it sort of takes the moment away from the story that you have to then bring it into, you know, their lives again. So what I say is, look, when I get, when I listen to speakers, generally I parallel my own life with what they're saying. So it, it, I, I pick out things, oh, I should do that, or I will do that, or that happened to me. So join a, let me tell my story, and then you take out of it of what you want. If you don't understand certain bits, then that's your question at the end. So that's how I do it. But to format that for, obviously it needs to be formatted right so that uh, business leaders can gain some something out of it to, to think of. So what I do is, you know, all the expeditions that I've done, major expeditions, by the way, are probably about 12 to 14 major expeditions. The other expeditions that you mentioned are guiding uh, treks or filming or we've Mm. been out for a couple of weeks. And I don't class them as expeditions as such, but I have been in the field getting my hands dirty. So, you know, whatever. Um, What I do is I pick on three moments off off three big expeditions so instead of saying uh 300 pictures on the thing this is when i did this this is when i did that you know it's like oh jesus um i just have very limited pictures a few really cool films um but then the words are really important to go around that um and then the three areas that i pick on is being alone in antarctica um having to cope with loneliness over 50 days and how I fell sometimes in my mind and how I picked myself up and kept moving. Um, and the second one is what the one I've just told you, but more in-depth story about sort of doing Everest. Mm. And then the third one is about working with a team across the North Pole and having to face, um, not through our own fault, but the expedition changing. Uh, as my friend on the expedition has written a book about it called Plan D. So it, it never worked until plan D and then we executed what <laughs> yes. we wanted to do. So um, so I pick on three areas. I tell the story because that's what explorers do. We, we storytell a moment. Um, and then I kind of highlight my decision making in each one. You know, this is why I did this, et cetera. And I try and feed that in, into, into the story itself. That's interesting because I had a question especially for uh, your, your your first one you know, when you're you're by yourself mm-hmm. you know you go solo on an expedition i mean what goes in your head being by yourself all day long for so many days yeah um antarctica was a strange one because um i'd never really operated alone i don't think you can operate alone unless you're flown into a position and dropped and left because i tried to train in a place called svalbard uh, longyearbyen um 
um, between Norway and the North Pole is a group of islands there. Um, and I spent 30 days out on my own, but I was quite close to the town and I could hear skadoos and, you know, um, and I sort of dipped in a couple of times and went to the cafe and grabbed a coffee and I went back out again. So it, it, the human nature to, to not suffer too much was within me. And I learned, I, I was upset by my actions then, but I learned that that was just human nature, you know. Um, but in Antarctica, the, the plane dropped me off on the West Coast um, and then left. And then you're left alone. You're, you're alone in the world. Um, I mentioned Ranul Fiennes before, and he wrote something in his book that I actually wrote to him very early on. And um, he wrote it down for me and sent it to me in a letter, which I was so proud of. I've got it today. Um, and he, he was in the same position, Hercules Inlet with Mike Stroud. And his words were, as he looked, as the plane disappeared and he looked towards his 700 miles to the south and he was going to go beyond that, he wrote a thousand jumbled thoughts helped to oust the appalling realization that this was my first uh, step of several thousand, my first breath of several million. Mm. And I was so inspired by those words. Now, probably about 15 years after that, I was dropped off, but on my own. And I stood in that position and I looked up and all I could think of was, ah, oh, shit, what have I done? <laughs> you know, and, and just to add value to that, I live near Stratford-upon-Avon, where William Shakespeare wrote the great words. Right. So I should be inspired a little bit, but I just, I just, <laughs> I wasn't. Um, but I was thrown into it. It's like throwing a kid in the deep end and saying swim. So right. after like five, I, I took an iPod with me as well because there's no bears, it's no danger at night. There's crevasses, but you, you navigate around them. Um, so you, all you've got in Antarctica is a strong catapatic winds coming off the gla off the, the uh, glaciers and the uh, around the area coming towards you, um, and then you get white ash from it. It's cold and all this stuff, but you all you're doing is just a slog on the way to the South Pole, and so to have a little bit of music in your ears or a book or something to stimulate on parts of the day was 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 good. I lost the iPod on the fifth day of the expedition. Um, and then from 45 days, I had nothing but my own, my own brain to listen to. Yeah. And, I, and in front of me, I had like this white horizon with dark clouds and, a, and a, just this horizon. Um, and it, for somebody who's not experienced that, it was driving me slightly mad. Mm. And you start to then get complete clarity in your brain because every day when we normally wake up our senses switch on to light uh, color sounds touch smells movement cars outside trees mm -hmm. you know people saying hello and all this sort of stuff but when you're out with nothing in Antarctica a bit like the matrix when when Keanu Reeves was standing in that white void of a room you've got nothing but silence mm. and the wind blowing and it's it, it it can really muck your your brain up. So you need to focus in somehow to get around that. And I, I couldn't do it. I, I pitched my tent on the sixth day. 
I got upset with myself. My knee were hurting. My my bindings had snapped. Uh, I was throwing up as well. So, I mean, all the stuff that you have when you start an expedition, I was trying to, I was sat in my tent trying to find an excuse to give in, basically. Um, and I phoned a few of my colleagues up to say, oh, my ski bindings have snapped. I might have to stop the expedition or and they were going, well, what have you thought of this? I was like, gosh, shit. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> and then, you know, I've got good friends who kind of can, oh, I lined up when I was in the UK to say, when I phone up, so I will, talk me out of it. So they taught me out. And one particular guy, Mark uh, Kelly, who's a super nice guy, he, he taught me back onto my feet and I started to move. But then even that, you know, that happened, I started to count my ski steps at like 3000 ski steps. And I, I stood then and I thought, how the hell am I going to do this? This is like the first week and I've, I've hardly covered any mileage mm. and I'm, I'm struggling like hell, you know? So I put mm. my ski sticks in the ground and I closed my eyes and I thought, where do I want to be on this planet in this moment in time? Well, I've got two wonderful dogs and I'm a real dog lover, an animal lover I, over human beings, unfortunately. Um, and I thought of a place that I go to in England where there's pine forests next to the sea. And I walk my dogs through the pine forests. I started to ski and I mm. walked them through the forest for about six miles. Then I brought them down the beach and I could smell the ocean and smell the pine. And I could see I was throwing sticks for my dogs and I was continuing my ski. And once I finished my dreamscape, I covered about five and a half nautical miles. And that's how I made the South Pole. I okay. created this world in my head, um, held on to thoughts. It was almost like, and I'm not a religious person. I have a respect for most religions um, and, and thoughts. So I, I became more, I don't say this for effect, by the way. I honestly, I am, I am a straight down, honest person. Right. And I know that these solo expeditions will affect people in different way. A colleague of mine, he did it and he just did it. <laughs> he just skied. So, but for me, I'm an ordinary person who finds exploration difficult. So I have yeah. to think through it and prepare mm -hmm. well. So that moment in time when I'm trying to push through, it almost becomes spiritual to you that yeah. you have to you know, your brain opens up so much, you get so much clarity from the lack of colors and everything that you then, it's a wonderful experience of, of complete brain clarity where you can think of stuff from your past. I was seeing images of friends and people have passed away. My mom had passed away 10 years before. I never grieved because I dealt with it as a soldier. And, and in Antarctica, I grieved the hell out of that stuff, crying and all everything. And it was wonderful, wonderful things to experience. Um, so I, it was a real sort of awakening for me just to do that experience. Um, and I also I felt, I'm telling you more than I usually do, by the way. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> you, you, you're good. You're a good interrogator, so that's fine. Um, I, I also felt a presence with me. Now, if somebody's listening to this, they'll go, okay, I've lost it now. Mark's annoying me, but I felt somebody with me. There was a time when I was moving up to the main plateau, which is 3000 meters up by the way. So it's, you know, the South pole plateau mm -hmm. is, at, is at an altitude. 
And I was finding it difficult to, to go up this helicarrier. And um, I was sort of crying, thinking of my mom and all this. And I felt this pressure on my back and a grip on my shoulder and somebody leaning into me and giving me these words of encouragement. Whether it was my mom or someone else, it doesn't, I don't know. And then that happened probably about three or four or five times. After I reached the South Pole, I went up to, directly afterwards, I flew to Canada and prepared for mm. the North Pole. So I did a back-to-back South North Pole expedition. And I trained with a wonderful guy called Richard Weber. Richard Weber is an icon in modern-day polar exploration for me. Very humble. Um, North Pole coastal expeditions seven times. Um, and he did a return trip from the North Pole, which he's unheard of. That's the... He's the messy of the polar world, if you like, for me. Um, so, but really humble. Um, and he, we did some open water training. And I thought, how do I tell this guy? I mean, normal guy. And I just said, Richard, this happened to me. And I told him about the someone leaning in. He said, well, it happened to me too. When he was coming back from the North Pole with his colleague, they're going towards a food drop and they lost the idea of where the food drop was. Mm-hmm. Um, so he sent his colleague off to the right as a pattern search. And as they moved forward, um, something was sort of taking him over to this little location on the left. So he started to move towards it. And if Rich has listened to this, my apologies if I've got the actual story wrong, but this is the essence of it. He reached the, the package, the, the, the food drop. And that was through a guidance that he, he had. And this mm-hmm. is, you know, and there are experiences of you can read about this of people coming down from Everest, and uh, they're kind of lost on a direction to the camp, and then the colleague comes up and says, "Oh, where have you been?" And I'll lead you to the tent. They get to the tent. He goes in the tent. Oh, so and so brought me here, and they say, "Well, he died about an hour ago." You know, it's strange, yeah. which I'm sure that any people you've got the the different thought patterns on that the belief of well that's something different so incredible and there's ordinary people like me telling those tales and then there's the belief well the mind does adjust in stressful situations and you can believe a lot of stuff you know but i felt it whether it's true or not who knows there's actually there's actually research on it and it's it's uh, getting proven that it it exists more and more i I recently read a uh, listened to a podcast about it so I, okay. I I believe in it. It's an incredible story. Wow! And there'll you know, be some people listening who sorry, there'll be some people listening who, you know, you mentioned the word guidance. Guide angels is a big word, but um, again, I'm not spiritual, but you have guidance through life. If you have if you have that feeling, there's nothing wrong with it. It it's there's nothing to be embarrassed about that. I get since doing these solo expeditions, especially. I've become more aware of who I am through what could possibly support me around me, if that makes any sense. Mm. It's kind of, I do feel that there's, I do feel there's, there's something looking out for you in this world. Um, but you've got to, it's the balance, balance of life. And, and you, I know you're preparing for your next expedition. Can you uh, mm-hmm. tell us what it's about and uh, when does it start? Yeah, I can tell you. The only thing I t- can't tell you is the route. <laughs> because I'm keeping that sort of under wraps at the moment. Okay. Um, mainly because it's a science-led expedition, which I don't usually do. Um, we did a little bit of science way back in the early days, but 
it's more educational based and and film based we've been doing over the last few years um but i'm going to go for quite a pure untouched area of the arctic um which people might think well are you sure because there's a lot of places it's all been discovered it is discovered but it's an area which people don't walk through. Even the Inuit people don't go through there, and especially on ski, on foot anymore. So the, the scientists, the three scientists, are leading scientists in the, in the world. And, and, the, and the website's going to – it's up at the moment, but it's going to – the website's set up for sponsors. We've got the sponsors mm. now. Isn't that great? Amazing. <laughs> um, and I was meant to go now. Um, but I've delayed it for a year and I'm in a privileged position of having the funding um, and then going in March of next year. Um, so the new website is now developed so that you can see what's going on. So in a few weeks, if you go on to Expedition Solo 100, you'll be able to see the science, the uh, psychology as well, um, the filming and everything else, which is uh, attached to the expedition. Um, but I'm doing some great science work, which I won't touch on at the moment. Um, and it's for, uh, it's called Solo 100 because it's 100 days alone in the Arctic. My God. So it's not a 50 wow. days, it's 100 days. Now, I let, let me explain one thing about this. I mentioned being having an ego at the start. I still have an ego. We all have an ego. But my ego is very balanced, mainly because I'm an old man now, I'm 56. So it's kind of like, you know, you get older and you're like, ah, you get grumpy. You know what I mean? So you know who you are. Yeah, I'm French. So, right? <laughs> Guinness World Record jumped on. Uh, well, they, they spoke to me last year. Wonderful people. We had a great meeting in London, uh, well, actually in 2019, before the pandemic. And we sat in London together and they were going, this could be a Guinness World Record and all this. And I was like, okay the longest ever duration of human blah 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 and i was like okay that's great that's good didn't sit well too with, with me and i'm not slagging off guinness world records here they're, they're super nice guys um and anyway we we then got the scientists on board and we got a real depth of understanding of how this is going to be brilliant it's a big documentary we're doing with a uh, narrated by tom hardy who's a wonderful british actor um and, you know, we've been filming for six years in Africa and Alaska and on Everest and at the North Pole. So we've got great filming in, in the can, as they say already. So we're going to film this last bit with Tom's voice on top. So brilliant documentary, great science um, and other studies around it. But I didn't feel comfortable about the, the world record logo because I thought if people see that, it's going to deflect away from the science and the reason why. So I had a meeting with them probably about a month ago now and i told them that exactly what i said to you and i said i think i might just take the logo off and and they said well what is the journey i said well it's going to be uh, the probably the longest solo um uh science expedition something like that and they went right we'll write a thing to say that you know because it, we want to draw attention to you and there's millions of children all over the world and adults who get their their book every year for christmas and they go straight to certain pages and this will really inspire them that there's a science work going on in purity of the, of the polar regions for for great reasons as well and i was like brilliant that's what i want 
So that's what they're going to do. So it's also a, a Guinness World Record attachment to it as well. I mean, how do you prepare for such an expedition? There must be so many details to go through. Yeah. And so, um, I mean, we did talk at the start, you and I, before we recorded this, and you said, what would you want to touch? And I think preparation for expedition is paramount. And also, I mean, if, if there are leaders or business people here, draw parallels with what I'm about to say. And you probably mm -hmm. know this, but it's, it's giving it a bit of a highlight of what you already know. Um, I'm inspired by, by adventure at the core of it. How can I have a great adventure? If you just do this for ego, then you will fail because it's freaking hard out there in the cold or on a mountain. So if you're doing it to wave a flag somewhere, then you're not going to succeed. The extreme of where we go, you won't succeed. So it's got to be an inside need to go and explore that inner childlike feeling of, of butterflies in the stomach of excitement. So what I do is I actually walk my dogs and I live in beautiful countryside and I walk my dogs and I remember this particular occasion. I thought, well, what, what would be the pinnacle of everything that I do? And I came up with the concept of doing 100 days alone and, and all the other stuff that I've said to you. Then I came back home and I put a whiteboard up mm. and I put Solo 100 in the center and I put finances, timeline, people involved, um, logistics, navigation, blah, 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 all the way marketing, uh, funding, mm. the big one, um, put it all there, wrote down everything like that, and then walked away. And then when I finished after about 40 minutes, and this is experience going on the board. And also it's like a painter having that inspiration and going up to a board and just painting crazily on the board. I put, I basically took everything that was in my head and dumped it on this whiteboard. And then what I did then was walked away again. I think, well, being English, I think I made a cup of tea and went up my garden <laughs> during the summertime uh, um, and just took myself away from what was on the board yeah. and played with my dogs or whatever it was. And then about an hour later, like an artist, if you like, came back to his, his, his um, painting and sat down and looked at the painting with fresh, clear eyes. And at that point, an artist will see imperfections that he needs to improve on or she needs to mm. improve on. And then in that moment, I will sit back and look at what I've written and gone, that needs to be changed. This needs to be done. And in all honesty, pure all honesty, I go, can this be done? Yes, it can. It can be done. Forget about the money, the logistics and everything at the moment of the problems that I will face with that. On the surface, can it be done? Yes, it can. And that's how you achieve great things. Because come up with creative ideas, think differently about life, creative ideas, honestly look at it, bring other people in of your same ilk, if you like, and then be inspired by the fact it can be done. At that point, everything is free. You haven't spent a penny. But you've then got to go and find the money. <laughs> <laughs> and that is the entrepreneurial way. Do you consider yourself an entrepreneur? Uh, yeah, I do. I mean, it, labels are one. Yeah, I, I do. Because of the fact of what I've just told you, really. Yeah. You're taking something which is potentially, which is perceived as nothing, and you're creating something incredible um, involving hundreds and thousands of people. 
So yeah, there's an entrepreneur line in that. Um, money has never been my driving force within all of this. It blinds you in your road to success. But you can't be naive with the fact that you need to earn money to pay a mortgage and live. So you need to you need to put that within your sponsorship package. And I mm -hmm. think the sponsors that have worked with me over the years wouldn't work with me if I bullshitted and said, oh, no, there's no money involved for me here. There needs to be money for you to live, for you to go and create this great product that they will benefit from. So when yeah. you go to a sponsor, it's not about them giving you money. It's about how they can join forces with you to enhance their own brand, their own what they're doing in whatever shape or form it is. But to be inspired in the first place, will get, what they're looking for and what every business is looking for, forget expiration now, the brand is you, the person. So you walk into a place and speak to somebody they if they like you they like your energy they like the direction the honesty of where you're going through you're kind of halfway there really mm. i've been in lots of talk uh, i've been in lots of sponsorship meetings where everything's yeah. failed i mean you've got to have that nothing's a failure it's only an obstacle that you have to pass through and you gain energy from each failure if you like if you want to be entrepreneur about that but it it's about sort of the moment where the, somebody will say, well, tell me about the trek mark. And I'm going, well, it's a, a ski trek. I'm pulling sledges and the school's involved. And they're looking at you and they're just going to sleep looking at you. And, they, and then suddenly you go, do you know what? To be honest with you, I just really want to reach out to. And then you say some incredible thing. And that's that mm -hmm. moment where they go, we, we want to get involved with you. So you've got to believe it inside of you. You've got to have that energy so when you go in there you're going in there going let me tell you about this incredible thing this is remarkable just give me your time and then give me your money <laughs> and this concludes this fantastic episode with uh, mark wood thank you very much for listening Interviews Cracking the Entrepreneurship Code is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. Subscribe now so you don't miss any episodes. See you next time. Bye for now.